Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Thanks, man. Well, I'm going to begin with very little pleasantries. If you want to find in your Bible, Luke chapter 6, that's where we'll be today. If you don't want to find it in your Bible, I'm going to put it up on the screen, so it'll make it really easy for those of you who, who just want to be able to look at it. But uh, we're going to dive into um, the least exciting text of your New Testament. In these days, he, and this is uh, Jesus, remember we are in a series reacquainting ourselves with Jesus. So Jesus has, uh, in chapter 6 at this point, you know, Jesus has begun his ministry. And today we're looking at how he gathers his disciples, who he gathers, and why that matters. So he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, so the, the large crowd, he gathers together, and And he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, sometimes you'll see somebody put the word apostle in front of their name, apostle, whatever. Um, It's not a fancy word. This is literally just a Greek word that we moved into English because it sounds fancy when you do stuff like that. It just means to send. If if I send Emery to go get her sister, Esri, she is my apostle. I've sent her. So Jesus is just gathering the ones that he's going to keep close that he can then send out to be his messengers, to kind of train more people. So he uh, picks the 12, he names them apostles, and here's the list of their names. You're going to see this several times this morning. So um, if you don't catch them all right now, it's okay, but here we go. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became... A traitor. Now, um, this is generally not how you start sermons if you want them to go well, but this is the kinds of things that I do. So here we are. <laughs> I don't know if you know these names or don't know these names. When I see this list, I think of VBS. I think of Sunday school. I think of memorizing this list of, of names because you got an extra 100 points and then you'd win the pizza party or whatever it was. Like we, we took these names and, and they became trivia for us that we could test each other on. Uh, but in terms of anything more than that, we kind of just skip over it. There's so many lists of names in your Bible. And if you're like me, you just breeze right by them. Because you look at it and you're like, oh, that, that's nice. There's the names. Moving on for something important. But huge chunks of your Bible are given over to lists of names. And we have to ask the question, because it was so difficult to write, so difficult to preserve, so expensive to make, why include a list of names? If it doesn't teach us something about who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And so that's what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do this morning. So as we begin, first I would say that this is a sign. It's important for us to remember that God called together Out of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob then had 12 sons, as you'll recall. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that becomes kind of the basis of most of our Bible, most of our Old Testament especially. In 722 and in 587 B.C., Israel is invaded 
And those 12 tribes are grabbed and scattered to the wind. They're moved all over the Mediterranean. They're mixed in with other people so that the tribes are no longer purely, you know, Dan or Asher or Zebulun or whatever the different tribe was. They're no longer pure anymore. They're mixed together. We call these sometimes even the lost tribes of Israel. And so the prophets later on, after all this happens, you get into the prophets. The prophets begin to declare a time, foretell a moment when God is going to step into world history and bring the scattered people home. This is a message of great hope to the people as they themselves are suffering under such deep oppression. We've been talking about that as well. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene... And calls together 12 different guys from different places, different occupations, different areas, different perspectives. He brings them together. He is enacting the vision of Isaiah. He is enacting the vision of the prophets. He's saying that today this scattered people is now being brought together. But it's no longer being lined up and moved through patriarchal lineage of biology. It's now moved through the Spirit. Now it moves to the Spirit. These sorts of ways of cutting each other up and making lines are no longer important. The tribes don't matter. Jesus has called them together. You'll remember that Jesus last week directly attached himself to the prophecies of Isaiah when he preached his first sermon. Here's another prophecy from Isaiah that maybe will help us understand what Jesus is plugging into here. He God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. I will say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. So Isaiah is, is, is latching onto this idea of, of, of the gathering of all of the people, but I want you to notice how quickly this devolves into universal kind of language. So who didn't God make? Who didn't God form? Who didn't God create for his own glory? Didn't all of humanity begin by God making and then placing in them his own breath and his own divine imagery? You see how this is expanding. And as Isaiah's vision continues on from really 40 all the way through 66, the vision gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And here we have Jesus bringing it all together. Now this list of disciples, Luke introduces us to two prior before prior to the, to the big, long list. And the first is Peter. Now, you might, you might have heard of Peter. He was a fisherman. But he was a fisherman not for sport or fun. It was subsistence living. So how many of us have fished? Everyone's gone fishing. Has everyone gone fishing? Anyone not gone fishing? Because Steve, did you, did you take notes, Steve, the hands that raised? There was one right here. Oh, well, Stop. <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, so P Peter was a fisherman, but he, he was a subsistence liver. So what that meant was every day as they caught fish, that fish was their livelihood for the day. What was left was sold. They were not making money, right? They were living day by day. Some of us have had the experience of living paycheck to paycheck. If you've lived paycheck to paycheck, you've had a better life than Peter and his family. Because that means you've had a week in a week, in a week. They moved day by day by day. 
So when Peter rolls in off of a long night of casting their nets and they came up empty, it isn't to say it was a bummer, it was a bad night, we didn't catch anything. It's to say that my family may not eat today. That whatever we're going to eat is what we've got left over from yesterday because we don't have money to buy new things today and we don't have fresh food to eat today. So this is exactly what happens. Peter comes off the water and we run into, runs into Jesus and Jesus says, hey, go back out and cast your nets again. Simon Peter answered, said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, we'll let down our nets again. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. They filled both boats up so that they began to sink. So, so much food has been poured into their pockets now that not only do they have the day, but they probably have the week. They probably have the month now because of all that God has given them, because of what Jesus has given them. And then we see Simon Peter who responds... By falling down at at Jesus' feet and saying, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now I want to hold on for a second, because I want to ask the question of why did Jesus recruit Peter like this? Like he, he, this is the most elaborate recruitment episode I've ever seen. I want you to help me out, and so I'm going to fill your nets and your boats with fish until they sink. What a bizarre choice. What a bizarre choice. Why would Jesus do this? It reminds me of the temptations. You remember Jesus was tempted just a couple of chapters back to make food from nothing? He's not willing to do it for himself, but he's willing to do it for Peter. And what's so interesting is how Peter responds to it. Why is Peter's, what's Peter's response to this, this, this outpouring of goodness? It's, it's his Damascus moment. Up to this point, Jesus was just another teacher. He's just another rabbi, just another person. But now he comes face to the face with the fact that Jesus is different. He is something else altogether. And when Peter meets grace, he meets himself. When Peter meets grace, he meets himself. I love it. Jesus breaks through to Peter not by telling him he's a sinner, not by correcting him, not by pulling his Bible out and showing him, not by telling him anything at all other than, boom, fish. And this moment of goodness and grace is enough to bring Peter to his knees in the recognition of how good God is and how little good we have performed. And in the face of this, Peter makes this confession. And I love Jesus because Jesus doesn't correct him, does he? (laughs) Jesus just, yeah, and we're moving on. Jesus is able to say to him, able to work with him, able to move with him in a way that he doesn't deserve it. And Jesus is okay with that. And it's Peter who actually has to begin to come to grips with the measure of God's grace, not Jesus. The other one we're introduced to is a man named Levi, also known as Matthew. And in this situation, we have, a much, we have a much different problem. Instead of kind of the, the blue-collar worker like we have with Peter, we have Levi, who is a, or Matthew, who is a, a tax collector. And immediately before we run into Matthew, Jesus has just forgiven a man his sins, healed his legs so he can get up and walk out. And Jesus immediately leaves that area where he was, and he runs into Levi. And Luke chapter 5, the same chapter he runs into Peter, 
And we run into this. It says this. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Did I put that in there twice? I did that twice, twice. There's like doubles everywhere. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, follow me. And leaving everything, he got up and following, followed him. Levi then made him a great feast in his home. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples and they said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? These good people are scandalized by the people that Jesus is hanging out with. Because they have in their mind a good-bad distinction. When you look at somebody that's a good person, when you look at somebody that's a bad person, that is not the way Jesus thinks. Jesus does not think in those kind of binary categories. Neither does God. He's sitting with the tax collectors right then. He recognizes the complexity of life. And he says to these, uh, these good people, responding to their criticism of him, spending time with people he shouldn't be spending time with, he says, well, listen, those who are, are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. If you've got it all put together, you don't need Jesus. If you've got God figured out, if you've got your life figured out, if you've got your morality figured out, if you've got your theology, if you've got everything all figured out, you don't need Jesus. In fact, when Jesus talks about prayer, you remember he talks about two different kinds of people praying. One person who says, I got it all figured out, and I'm glad that I'm not like that. And a guy who's over here saying, I'm really terrible, God forgive me, which one does Jesus prefer? Right? It's, it's not hard. To recognize the difference, as Jesus tells the story, and yet it's so hard to recognize the difference in our own hearts and in our own lives. So we have this instance here of, of Levi, and he's sitting around, and, and what struck me uh, new as I was thinking about all of these sequences is I realized as I was reading this sequence of, uh, of Levi and the tax collectors is that uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew are there at the party, right? So, so you have this big party of tax collectors, all these people who have been, and, and tax collectors are not just, they're not just people who take money, but they take money and they give it to the people that are harming you, oppressing you, right? They are the bad guys. In every story you could conceive of, they are the bad guys, they're the traitors. And here is, is Peter and James and Andrew and John, and they're sitting at the table with these tax collectors and all of the righteous guys that they've been listening to their whole lives are looking through the window and saying, what are you doing with those bad people? Can you imagine how uncomfortable Peter was sitting at a table eating with Matthew? Can you imagine how uncomfortable James and John, who spent their whole life ripping nets out of the water for fish for the day, are sitting at a table from the tax collectors who collected taxes from them, sitting at their table eating a feast. Imagine how uncomfortable Peter, James, John, Andrew were sitting at this party with Jesus. And imagine what they thought about when they left the doors and heard the crowds outside. I mean, this is kind of a wild situation. So back to our list for a second here. When you look at this list, I need you to see it. I need you to see it for what it is. And what it is 
is a mess. <laughs> it's Simon Peter who never ceases to put his foot in his mouth. It is fishermen who know only ripping things out of the water, right? Living day to day. It's, it's, it's Matthew who is collecting taxes from all of these guys so much so that he had enough to have a feast and a house and all that he wanted. We have uh, uh, James and John, the, the uh, sons of thunder. Uh, James and John, the sons of There's a situation where Jesus uh, is preaching in a city and they don't listen to him. And so they're leaving the city and James and John say, they didn't listen to you, Jesus. Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Right? Can I get a witness, church? Come on. You've all thought that before. We all have. Like, oh. And Jesus rebukes them, right? There's another situation where James and John come to Jesus and they say, uh, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom. Anybody get an idea about what that might mean? Can we be in charge of the rest of these guys when you come into your kingdom? How do we get the positions of honor and privilege? We have Simon the Zealot. This is a political party, a literal political party of the day whose political aspirations were to overthrow or throw out Rome through violent revolutionary force. Most of what those zealots did was till, kill tax collectors. That was like the easiest thing to do because there are tax collectors that are around and you could knife them when they went to Sabbath, right? So, so and I'm not even getting to the, the bottom one here, but so you just look at this group of people. I, I want you to see that this people are a mess. So when we run into Luke chapter 9, an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. I don't find that hard to believe. In fact, I don't find that hard to believe because I've been in church a long time. And we still argue about that, right? We still have these same kind of fights. You have them in home. You have them at work. You have them in your own mind. We still have this same fight. And Jesus I find so interesting because as he pulls this group together and as he deals with this argument, he takes a child and he puts it by his side and he says to him, says to them, arguing about who's the greatest, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. Now, I realize that some of you are interpreting that in our modern Western mindset, and you're thinking to yourself, that's right, I hate volunteering in nursery. Screaming kids, snotty nose, poopy diapers, nothing really to love about it. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying something far more controversial. In those days, they did not look at children with big, gooey, warm hearts like we do. Children were not innocent and perfect. Children played with slaves because that was the rung of society that they were on. Literally, children would play with slaves. No one else would do that. So when Jesus says to them, listen, you need to go to the little children, he's not saying, listen, I need you guys to like, take it, humble yourselves a little bit and go volunteer in the nursery, help with the children's ministry. He's not saying that kind of stuff. He is saying, I want you to go to the lowest rung of your current society, and I want you to dwell there. Stop trying to escape the children's table for the big adult table, and you go back to the children's table because that is where you will learn about what it is like to know 
God. When you take yourself to the bottom rung. But I think the metaphor is deeper because, of course, children give us a lot. In children, there is very little guile, very little deceit. Everything is sort of on the sleeve. Problems get worked out really quick because they have to be. Lots of things that children show us about the world itself because there's a lot less of the climbing, (laughs) the ladder. But how quickly we learn it. Even Ezri at three has been telling me how she is so much bigger than Cammie, who is also three, and only slightly smaller than she is physically. But already, Ezri is learning domination. At three years old, she's learning that she is bigger. And because she is bigger, she can do more. And we start so young, and we carry that with us. We carry that view of the world with us. And Jesus is here to subvert, undo, and heal that wound in you because that is a wound in you that we would be willing to harm one another for any reason is a wound in us and Jesus is calling us to set our weapons down Jesus says by this you'll know you are my disciple That you love one another. And is there one time that you, I don't think we feel any more loved than in that moment when you feel really heard. You you ever gone through a hard time and somebody, you're sitting with somebody and they say to you, "I, I really, I know what you're going through. And you can tell that they actually do. And they're listening and they're not thinking about an argument. They're not thinking about a correction. They're not going to give you any advice. They are just with you in the pain. They're just sitting there. And you just hear and you feel like you're in the present moment with someone. But you're not alone. Jesus is calling us to love one another. And it's so easy, it's hard. I imagine, I imagine Peter and Matthew arguing politics. I imagine Bartholomew and James arguing religion. I imagine economy. I imagine all of the things that, that we would argue about. Like the world is not different. We are not different. The same wounds and problems and fights exist inside of us. And Jesus has called these people together into one place. And he says to them, as he prays his last prayer before he is taken away to be crucified, this is his prayer. Not for the disciples that he is standing around, but for the disciples that will come after those disciples. This is one of those few places in the Bible that that wall is broken and you and I are directly addressed. And here Jesus does that. He says to us, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That sounds very convoluted and complicated, but I hope that you just see its lines of intimacy crossing. Jesus is saying, I am connected to you, God. And I want these people to connect to you. And I want these people to connect to each other. And I want to connect to these people. I just want to see a web, a network of connection 
This is what Jesus is praying for. And my friends, if you take a look, that's kind of what happened, isn't it? Couldn't Jesus have taken this this group? Couldn't he have chosen 12 people that would get along really well? Couldn't he have chosen 12 people that believed everything the same that he did, everything the same that they did? Couldn't he have chosen people who who had the same political, economic, philosophical, religious, I mean, whatever the things, it, racial, whatever the things are that divide, couldn't he have picked a group of people that agreed? Instead, he didn't. He went out of his way to find people that wouldn't so that Jesus and Jesus alone would be the rock upon which their unity is built, that everything else, everything else is a shadow. It's a shadow. And we're giving too much of our lives to the shadow. And we need to give more of our lives to Jesus and to one another. Because that is the power of love. That is the only thing that will bring healing to our wounds. Whether we're talking about you as an individual, or we're talking about a country, or a people, or a place. Whatever it is, that is it. Because love does something that nothing else does. Love puts you on the same side. Even when you are not on the same side. Every one of you have proved it. You've proved it through your marriages. You've proved it through your families. You've proved it through your friendships. And now we have to prove it with the enemy. Now we have to prove it with the other. Now we have to prove it with the people who aren't tied to us by biology or by position or by work. Now we have to choose to do it for every single person you meet because that is what Jesus does. Jesus built his church like this. We can't build it any other way. Let's stand and sing.